0: The Biden administration eases travel restrictions for U.S. ports of entry.
1: For too long, the restrictions at our border have separated families, have devastated businesses uh, that rely on cross-border travel.
0: I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Kavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Experts warn the improving COVID-19 situation could lead to a false sense of security. You know, we're not out of the woods here. We have plenty of people who are unvaccinated in this state,
2: and they are the most likely suspects to get COVID and to spread COVID. Uh, Although things
0: are looking good right now, we can't let our guard down. Backyard granny flats are seeing a boom in San Diego, but a new report finds they can still be very difficult to build. And the new season of our podcast, Port of Entry, kicks off with a story of trash to treasure. That's coming up on KPBS Midday Edition. The Biden administration announced today it's easing travel restrictions at land border crossings after 19 months of closure to all but essential travel. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria praised the move in a press conference this morning.
1: They are allowing families to be reunited. They're allowing businesses to get back to a sense of normalcy. And they're allowing our local economy to finally fully recover.
0: Starting in early November, foreigners entering the U.S. for non-essential travel will have to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination. Joining me to discuss the development and its impact on San Diego is David Shirk, Department Chair and Professor of Political Science and International Relations at University of San Diego. Professor Shirk, welcome.
1: Yes, thanks for having me.
0: Border crossings from Tijuana have been taking place to some extent throughout the pandemic. So remind us what types of crossings were previously allowed and which can resume in November because of this announcement.
1: So um, with the uh, near the start of the pandemic, the Trump administration imposed a restriction to uh, border crossers to only allow essential travel across uh, U.S. ports of entry. Um, and any visitors who wanted to come to the United States for non-essential purposes, such as visiting Disney- Disneyland, could come in through airports uh, and, and um, uh, flying into the country. But for people living here in the border region, uh, only so-called essential travelers were uh, permitted to come across our, our landbound ports of entry. Um, so that could include someone coming across for medical reasons It could include someone who has a position that uh, is listed among the federal categories of essential workers. Um, But uh, it it essentially meant that for Mexican nationals um, working working or or, uh, in a a situation where they were not considered essential, they could not come across the border from uh, say Tijuana to San Diego, uh, for their their uh, otherwise for their so-called non-essential activities like visiting their grandchildren or uh, trying to uh, go shopping and, and or go out to restaurants, etc.
0: How might these changes impact the local economy, and how might they impact the lives of everyday people in our community?
1: Well, immediately prior to the pandemic, um, you know, in February of 2020, we had uh, on average around 200,000 people crossing the uh, San Isidro uh, Otay Mesa, ports of entry into the San Diego, into San Diego County um, on any given, uh, in any given uh, day. And um, by April of 2020, we saw that number drop by uh, more than 50%, uh, down to about 75,000 people crossing the border on a daily basis. So the ports of entry were really dramatically emptied. Uh, And over the course of 2020, we saw that number gradually go up uh, uh, until about midpoint this year when we have, you know, around 160, 170,000 people crossing on a daily basis. So we've recuperated significantly the number of people who are coming um, uh, for so-called essential purposes, but there's still, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people who are not crossing the border, not coming across to to visit SeaWorld, to use our rest, to go to our restaurants, um, and to engage in other quote-unquote non-essential activities. But for our border community, and especially for uh, South County businesses, uh, it's been quite devastating in, in terms of trying to Uh, You know, run local restaurants and um, even hotels and other industries where there's a big dependence on both uh, people who uh, can live in Tijuana and legally work in the United States and a dependence, obviously, on the customers who would would, um, be coming across for for ordinary um, uh, commercial activities or or, uh, shopping activities.
0: Air travel to the U.S. has been permitted for non-essential travel as long as the traveler could prove a, a negative COVID nineteen test. So, in some ways, it's been easier to get to San Diego on a flight from Mexico City than crossing on foot or in a car at San Ysidro. Why was air travel treated differently than land border crossings?
1: You know, it's it is a a crazy exception. I can't explain why that policy was chosen. I know in our case. We've had to fly colleagues uh, from Mexico City and elsewhere uh, in Mexico uh, to Los Angeles uh, or to San Diego in order to get them to come to professional activities here at the University of San Diego because of this odd loophole. Um, whereas normally we might fly them in the Tijuana airport and have them come across uh, the, um, the CBX facility, um, we had to go through this extra step in order to bring vaccinated people uh, here for for professional purposes. Um, and I, I think you know the part of the problem, in my view, is that in Washington there's really a difficulty in comprehending the the realities of. What it means to live in a cross-border community and to to you know go about your daily business in a place like san diego and tijuana um and this sort of perception that you know flying people in with a vaccination card is somehow safer than having uh people drive across with a vaccination card is, is a little bit foolish because there's so much intermingling in our communities anyway that um i'm very personally skeptical that the border closure uh, or restrictions have had any real effect in reducing cross-border flows of COVID.
0: I've been speaking with University of San Diego Professor David Shirk, and Professor Shirk, thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
4: Numbers of new COVID infections are finally going down in California and nationally, but officials are warning everyone not to let their guard down. This time last year, COVID looked like it was in retreat before the deadly winter surge. So questions remain about boosters, about vaccine mandates, about vaccinations for children and about Halloween trick-or-treating. Joining us for his weekly COVID update, it's a pleasure to welcome back Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back.
2: Thanks, Maureen. Always great to be with you.
4: The number of new cases is going down. Is that because of vaccine mandates?
2: Well, that's playing some role. It's hard to quantify precisely. I mean, it's a combination of many things. California is doing very well, but our vaccination rates are still, let's say, 10% points lower than the best states like Vermont and in New England. But we have had a lot of prior COVID in the state, which has helped build some immunity. Fortunately, a lot of those people also have been vaccinated, which gets terrific immunity built up. And Uh, The mandates help promote vaccination. So all in all, you know, things are looking good. But of course, we're not to a level of containment. So we still have a ways to go.
4: Now, two recent studies, one out of Israel, determined that the Pfizer vaccine has a steep drop off of immunity protection after only two months, although it still does offer great protection against serious disease for many months. Should that new information change the way we're approaching booster vaccines?
2: Yes, the best data we have from Israel is uh, on boosters come from Israel. And indeed, after five or six months in people over age 60, there's a a significant drop uh, in protection from hospitalizations, severe illness. So it's really... interesting it's the older age group uh, that are the ones that really need to get this extra shot so that's the high risk group the cutoff is really occurring at age 60 and the time is about five to six months after that point it starts to become increasingly apparent that the benefit uh, of an additional shot uh, will be important
4: now if you're over age 60 or over age 65 can you just go in and get a booster shot now and are those the only people who can do that
2: well, no. The if you're a healthcare worker, essential worker, or you have multiple medical coexisting conditions, you also can get uh, a, a booster from uh, local pharmacies that carry them. As far as is it only the people older? No, those are the ones at highest risk. Across the board, we're learning uh, again from Israel, which has such you know careful collected data that all people will have the benefit from a third shot. Uh, if they had a Moderna or Pfizer, especially Pfizer, but the data from Moderna coming in too, that extra shot prevents symptomatic infections. Why is that important? Well, nobody wants to get COVID. Uh, You don't know where it's going to go. It could lead to long-term symptoms. It also could transmit to others. So these are the features that why we want to suppress symptomatic infections. Oh, so it could be, Maury that over the weeks ahead, as we get more data, the recommendations will go, extend beyond where they are right now, which is age 65 in the U.S. It should be 60. Uh, it could go much lower and it could be, you know, close to across the board. But it's just a little early to make that call right now.
4: Are boosters for Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccines approved yet?
2: Well, this week is the big week. Unfortunately, there is no Israel for these two vaccines and we have limited data. The the data that's being presented uh, at the FDA meetings this week basically show that if you give the extra shot to either vaccine, Moderna or J&J, you get a nice immune response. But they don't have the ability to suppress the need for hospitalization, the protection from these serious outcomes. That doesn't exist. So, in the FDA briefing documents, we have part of the story and you basically have to bring in other pieces of data like the Pfizer-Israeli data to make that conclusion. Most likely, the FDA will recommend the boosters for all of our vaccines in the U.S., which include Moderna and J&J. But that's going to be uh, somewhat controversial because there's some deficiencies in the data that's going to be reviewed.
4: And can you mix vaccinations? In other words, if you got a Moderna vaccination, two of them fully vaccinated, can you get a Pfizer booster?
2: Yes. As it turns out, just today, that data was uh, just put out on the web as a preprint. It will be presented at the FDA meeting on mix and match. So they had about 150 people that had each of the three vaccines, Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J. And then they gave those people any of these nine combinations. And uh, they work very well in terms of mixing. So the, the concerns that we've had with respect to staying in your lane, if you've got Pfizer, keep getting Pfizer, Moderna, And on and on. That probably is now going to be past tense. This idea of mixing, particularly if you had the J and J vaccine, the response to getting either Moderna or Pfizer is very potent.
4: Dr. Topol, I have to ask you this question because I've had a couple of people bring this up. Is there anything like having too many antibodies against COVID in your system? I've heard some people who've had COVID say they don't want to get a vaccine or they don't want to get a booster because they'll have too many antibodies.
2: (laughs) No, no such thing. Uh, the best thing would have is high level of neutralizing antibodies. Those are the important ones, uh, as you possibly can, because that is the ultimate protection. That's basically the inactivation of the virus, so it can't, you know, do anything to a person. So high levels are great, and we have no data, no evidence to indicate that the limit is there could be uh, in any way a negative thing. So that's a miscue. And I hope that uh, we'll learn uh, everywhere, everybody that we wanna have neutralizing antibodies. That That's the whole idea.
4: Now we heard today that the land border between the US and Mexico will reopen next month for the fully vaccinated. Is that a good idea in your opinion?
2: You know, I think it has some merits uh, that we are trying to return to our our pre-COVID life. That's good. The liabilities are the vaccination cards that we have are not exactly foolproof as to being authentic. I wish we had that, you know, digitally validated. The other thing is, what about people who have been vaccinated and could be carriers? That is, they're They haven't yet developed the infection symptoms or they're not going to develop, but they have a COVID infection that can transmit. It's not common, but if we were to do rapid testing that can be done in minutes, that would take it to another level of safety. So I think it's okay, but we could actually even do better if we had authentication of the vaccination and we were also uh, using rapid tests to help guide that.
4: You know, finally, Dr. Fauci says trick-or-treating outside is okay for kids this year. What do you think about what's okay and what's not for Halloween this year?
2: You know, it would have been really nice if we could have had the uh, age 5 to 11, who are a lot of the the trick-or-treaters, to be vaccinated, because that would even take it to another level of safety. But that's not going to happen. It will likely get the go-ahead in early November, just missing out for Halloween. But I do think, you know, there's nothing to suggest that outdoor transmission is a concern. So since Halloween is an outdoor story, I, I don't see a problem with that at all. But uh, in the future, when, as more children get vaccinated, it's going to become even uh, a safe, ideal uh, situation.
4: And finally, Governor Newsom and others are warning that we saw declining case rates this time last year, too, before the winter COVID surge. Could we see another bad uptick of disease in the coming months?
2: Absolutely. You know, we're not out of the woods here. We have plenty of people who are unvaccinated in the state, and they are the most likely suspects to get COVID and to spread COVID. Uh, although things are looking good right now, we can't let our guard down. We need to keep getting more people vaccinated. And we also have to be careful because just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean that you are fully protected. That's why these booster shots for the high-risk people are going to be necessary. So we are quite a ways from containment. You know, Hopefully, eventually we'll get there in the months ahead, perhaps even sooner if we can rev up vaccination, but um, we still have lots of vulnerability.
4: I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, Director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, as always, thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Maureen.
1: Hey, 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 this is Parker Edison, Thanks.
4: This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Hindman is out today. The number of accessory dwelling units, or ADUs, often called granny flats, continues to grow in San Diego. Construction boomed during the pandemic and shows no signs of slowing. But the process of building a small detached house in a backyard can be more challenging and more expensive than many homeowners realize. So the San Diego Housing Commission is out with a report on Lessons Learned from its own pilot program, building five granny flats in the city of San Diego. Joining me is San Diego Housing Commission Executive Vice President of Real Estate, Emily Jacobs. And Emily, welcome to the program.
5: Thank you so much. Lovely to be here.
4: Why did the Housing Commission launch this pilot program? Were you maybe getting a lot of questions about ADUs from homeowners?
5: So the pilot program is a result of a study that the housing commission completed in 2017. It's entitled addressing the affordable housing crisis. And it noted ADUs as a method to assist in housing production. Additionally, per the direction of the land use and housing committee in 2019, this pilot program was born as sort of a test kitchen of sorts, to help the citizens of San Diego understand the process of ADU design, permitting and construction.
4: Okay, so where did you build the houses?
5: We built the houses on five available yard space on some single-family home dwellings that the Housing Commission's nonprofit affiliate housing development partners owns and operates. So we have that yard space, um, and it proved to be good locations for this test kitchen um, pilot program.
4: Now, one of the major suggestions the Housing Commission offers is using, quote, permit-ready housing plans in construction. Why is that important?
5: It's very important because it really, it does two things. It allows um, the homeowner to have plans that um, are ready to go. So you limit the amount of design cost associated with doing this. Additionally, what makes it important is to modify it to be consistent with the municipal code for the jurisdiction that you're wanting to develop the ADU in. So it essentially cuts time in the permitting process, as well as design cost associated with developing ADUs.
4: What are some of the other lessons learned from the pilot program? We uh, quite frankly learned a ton. Um, one of
5: the, the key takeaways was to assemble a team of experienced professionals for design, permitting, and construction. A lot of times it seems, you know, doing something like this is not a daunting task, but all of the development principles still apply, regardless of the size uh, of the property or the size of the unit you intend to put on the property. So, assembling a team of experienced professionals is key. Again, like we mentioned previously, using permit ready plans. It's also important to consider factors that significantly impact cost. And that would be uh, things that would drive up permit cost, or if you want some specialized design elements, um, in addition to kind of how it's going to situate on the lot. So really being cognizant to do that upfront work to avoid those back-end um, pitfalls. Another thing we learned was to prepare for factors that could significantly impact the project timeline. Again, if you're wanting to do something very involved on the design side, you know, do all that upfront work because time is money. Um, so you want to pay close attention to the schedule associated with the development of the ADUs. Another thing that was very, very fun in terms of the pilot program was the use of a manufactured home very, very different than a custom stick build um, and proved to have reduced cost and reduced timing in terms of permitting and actual construction. So very, very fun um, medium that we used um, and we, we highly recommend using manufactured.
4: How much did the, the ADUs cost to build? So they varied um, by type for the
5: studio stick build it ran uh, just shy of 120,000. For the three bedroom, three bath stick build, just shy of 350,000. And your manufactured home, it ran just shy of 140,000. I will say that the square footage on the manufactured is about double the studio size and the cost per square foot on the manufactured is the lowest.
4: And I'm going to ask you this about stick build, because I guess construction doesn't take too long on manufactured units. How long does construction take?
5: Yeah, great question. So for the stick build, um, it took um, upwards of two years all in from design permitting and construction. The actual construction phase ran about eight to 10 months, depending on type.
4: Did anything about the process of building these pilot project granny flats surprise the housing commission? I think what we
5: learned uh, as a good aha was to make sure that you understand the topography of any of the parcels on these projects. When you build them, you have to ensure a level site. And it might not be visual to you that there is topography on the site. So an aha for us was to ensure that you do a topographical study on all of the parcels to ensure that when you situate either the stick build or the manufacturer, that you don't have anything being sort of wonky in the process.
4: Okay. Now, if people want to learn more about the Housing Commission pilot project and those lessons learned, where can they find that information?
5: Absolutely. They can find it on our website at www.sdhc.org. And it's an ADU landing page um, that they would search for. There's also links to other resources as well as the City of San Diego's page that has additional resources on the development of ADUs.
4: And I've been speaking with Emily Jacobs with the San Diego Housing Commission. Emily,
0: thank you so much.
5: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: You know what they say about one man's trash becoming another man's treasure? Well, at the border, the journey from trash to treasure often involves an actual trip from San Diego to Tijuana, where things like old furniture, appliances, and other used or discarded objects find a second life. In a new episode of KPBS's border podcast, Port of Entry, host Alan Lilienthal and producer Kinsey Moreland take us inside this cross-border, secondhand world.
5: What time is it? It's time to to start. I'll let you do your work. Thank you!
0: This past summer, my producer
6: Kinsey Moreland showed up to an auction at a huge warehouse outside of downtown San Diego. About a dozen people stood outside of a locked gate, then rushed in when a staffer officially opened the auction.
1: Buena suerte! (laughs)
6: Behind the gate was a sea of second-hand furniture, clothes, exercise equipment, refrigerators, and other used items that would soon be auctioned off to the highest bidders.
0: Oh, do you see anything here today? That oh, have? yeah,
7: I see a, oh, a whole lot. You lot. show me? Yeah, sure, like all this, all this stuff on, over here. Any of these things, like these cabinets and... These cabinets right here, yeah. this beautiful dining room table with the chairs. But what it's it is, like fairly it's... barely used. Well, yeah, well, uh, know, I don't like the word used. We got to say previously enjoyed.
5: Ah, I like it. Rebranding.
6: Yeah. This is Daniel. He's one of the biggest buyers of secondhand goods at auctions north of the border, which makes him one of the biggest resellers
7: south of it. Oh, I do it by the truckloads.
0: Okay, vamanos, let's go. Let's
7: go, Right now they're bidding on this stuff. That refrigerator went for 100 bucks. It probably works. Somebody probably figured out it works and everything. So 15, 20 bucks for the stove. He does it in English and Spanish because most of the people are, they only speak Spanish. But there's, you got it's multicultural. Look at it, you know.
0: Yeah, toro. Por Daniel didn't
6: want to give us his last name, by the way. In part because he's a businessman in Tijuana, and he says that makes him a target for crime. He says he also wants to remain somewhat unknown to his competitors bidding on goods at these auctions. Anyway, Daniel buys used things at auctions like this one at Father Joe's in San Diego. Then he and his fleet of drivers take the goods to the port of entry in San Isidro where they're required to pay an 18% tax of the estimated value of the goods to the Mexican government before they can cross. Then Daniel sells this stuff at his huge secondhand store in Tijuana.
7: My whole goal, my whole thing is, like I tell all the people over here, is keep the landfill stuff down. And it's not, we're not taking trash down into Mexico, but what it is is we're just trying to keep stuff down and try and supply people with stuff that can be reusable, upcycled, I guess you could say.
6: Daniel, by the way, says the pandemic has totally rocked this corner of the cross-border world. Not as many people are donating stuff, not as many people are buying previously enjoyed items anymore, and the majority of the folks who used to cross to buy stuff can't cross right now because the border is still closed to Mexican citizens with tourist visas.
7: Been like Usually on a, on a day like this today, you can't see through the radio, but this would be a big crowd of people. Yeah, we're only seeing a handful right now.
0: <inaudible> <inaudible>
8: <inaudible> Seth
6: Sullivan, better known as Art Pusher on Instagram, used to be one of those people lining up outside the gate at that auction in San Diego most mornings. <inaudible> Seth became a picker a person who finds secondhand things at auctions, thrift stores, and estate sales. Then he refurbishes those things and gives them a second life. Seth's buyers were mostly resellers, people who own higher-end antique stores or sell
9: furniture and art directly to collectors. I figured out that that resellers were the easiest people to sell to because they always had a budget to buy because they needed to have inventory. And once you have a store, you don't have the time that it takes to pick on your own. So all these stores rely on pickers, people like me that are a middleman between basically the garbage dump and the millionaire. Seth quickly rose
6: through the ranks to become one of the best pickers at the border. These days, Seth is at the top of his game. He went from being a picker with an eye for good design to being one of the top interior designers at the border.
5: All right, so where do you want to start for the tour?
6: Over the summer, Seth took my producer Kinsey and I on a tour of Hotel Lafayette. It's a Hotel on Revolución in downtown Tijuana where he's heading up the interior design work
9: this piece of furniture in the entrance. This is multiple pieces, like seven pieces of furniture. They got deconstructed and rebuilt to make the front desk. Um, The television is also wood, so it just happened to fit right in there. And we're hooking this up to an original Nintendo on wireless controllers. So if you sit here and you're waiting for your room, you can play Mario and...
6: The interior of the hotel shows off a lot of the salvaged things that Seth has turned from trash into design treasure. We started right past the entrance, where Seth created this beautiful and nostalgic front desk. Remember those wooden entertainment centers from the 80s and 90s, where our boxy TVs and Nintendos would go in our childhood homes? Imagine a bunch of those pieced into one single structure that looks like a front desk, where the concierge stands.
9: So, that, so I think I think that the whole key about this place was to make it fun, catchy and quirky. It's a commercial space, it's not someone's private home, so you can play with other people's feelings at the same time, right? which which I think is great about commercial spaces because you're not designing it for the customer. You're designing it for their customers. Next, Seth showed us a big mirror he designed for the hotel lobby.
5: There's something going on behind this mirror, for sure.
6: At first, it looked sort of like a basic large mirror. Just a big rectangle with a frame covered in a collage of old San Diego Union-Tribune newspaper clippings from decades ago. I can kind of see something on the other side. But when we got up close, Kinsey and I could tell there was something more going on. Definitely want to see it now. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Whoa! Okay,
0: wow, that's... what do you see?
6: Well, first like the first thing that hit me was like I was looking into infinity. Like for some reason it just expanded the space a lot. Yeah. But there's these like kind of old school Mexican mariachi type dolls with sombreros marionettes hanging <laughs> in the depths
9: of the mirror that oh, you wouldn't have seen God. if it's not turned on.
0: That's amazing. That's so <laughs> rad. The the
9: whole thing with this one was was to bring something in that really spoke of Avenida Revolución. And to me when I was a kid, dude, seeing these things colorful and then the vendors would always like entertain the kids with them when they're walking by and they would tell you how, they'd guilt trip your parents into buying you one. And so those things always rung, rung a bell in my head and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fun, it's, it's cartoony, it's playful.
6: Seth showed us a few more special things, whimsical, beautiful, very colorful things, and explained his process, which he says is sort of like a call and response game he plays with the space. My musician mind likened it to the process of musical improvisation, like jazz.
9: What I do, I didn't study art, I didn't study design, so a lot of it I call it, the plan is there's no plan. So a lot of it literally is freestyle, dude. So we figure out what materials we have, we look at the spaces, and it's, my fa- it's a complicated way to do it, but it's my favorite way to do it because you feel the space before you start messing with it. Um, I've worked with a plan before, I've worked with architectural plans before, and sometimes when you have too much of a plan, you don't really work the bones, Some you know? Sub <laughs> plans, I like it. You don't work the bones of the project, you know? Um, but it's... Like it's jazz.
6: You, don't have a map really.
9: you don't have a map, dude. So it's, it's, it's been like you said, dude, it's been kind of like this jazz thing to where not just me, but the other contractors that are coming in are kind of doing the same thing, and it's worked out beautifully, dude, you know?
0: And that was artist and designer Seth Sullivan talking with Port of Entry's Alan Lilienthal and Kinsey Moreland. There's a lot more to Seth's story, including surviving a difficult childhood that set him on the creative path he's on now. You can hear the full story in today's new episode, which kicks off a new season for our Port of Entry podcast. The season is focused on cross-border artists and designers who've turned pain into power. Find Port of Entry on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen
4: the rock and roll running series started here in san diego and has since spread across the country and even internationally it had been an annual tradition since 1998 until the covid pandemic came kpbs reporter claire trageser says now the race is back
8: so in 98, I ran my first marathon and uh, did rather poorly, and that led to me doing a second rock-and-roll marathon.
10: Bill Aaron, with his long forest Gump beard and rock-and-roll running jacket, looks exactly like what you'd expect of a legacy runner, meaning he's never missed a single race.
8: And then I get, kind of decided that I was sort of enmeshed in it, and I did, a, no, I did three, and I did four. And then in five, they gave us a really sweet patch for being a legacy runner. And it, one thing led to another.
10: And then he kept racing for 23 years. But then COVID came, and the event that's normally held every June was canceled. On the
8: one hand, my body felt enriched by the fact that I wasn't banging out these obnoxious Saturday runs. But on the other hand, um, it felt a little weird uh, because I wasn't engaged like I normally would be.
10: The June 2021 race also didn't happen. It was postponed to this October 24th. And when runners line up in Balboa Park, Aaron will be there, even though he's not used to running a fall marathon.
8: I can't imagine not being there October 24th, irrespective of how I think the marathon for me personally is going to go. I can't imagine waking up, the morning of October 25th and realizing that I did not tow the line the previous day.
10: The runners come in this way off of the ash. Merrill Leventon is the race director. She's preparing for an unusual race after almost two years of uncertainty. It feels kind of surreal to actually be talking
4: about it right now because we didn't know when we were going to be racing.
10: There are still COVID precautions to take, no shuttle buses, and runners will be much more spread out at the start. She expects 20,000 people this year, which includes people who are signed up in 2020 and deferred, and also new people who picked up running when gyms were closed. I'm excited to welcome all these new runners that have picked up this hobby during the pandemic. So I would say the overall level of excitement
5: is higher than usual.
10: Making it for a lost time. Wendy O'Dwyer has already run a few races this summer. She normally runs several each year and says during COVID, she felt the loss of the starting line.
8: I wasn't motivated to run. And then when they, for some reason, they, canceled, they
10: closed off Balboa Park for runners and walkers, which I thought was kind of weird. But because I couldn't run through the park. Now she's eager for the race, which has lots of entertaining sights from San Diego along the way, from Balboa Park to drag queen cheerleaders in Hillcrest to the Military Mile in North Park. As for Aaron, the legacy runner, he's determined to toe the line, even if he feels a little nervous about being in a big crowd. I tell my
8: athletes not to get those kind of things stuck in their head because it has a tendency to overwhelm um, all the psychological um, adaptations that take place when you're training for a race like this.
10: He says he'll likely wear a mask at the starting line and then take it off as the crowd thins and runners spread out along the course. Claire Trageser, KPBS News.
0: I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Kavanaugh. Jade Hindman has the day off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. October is Filipino-American History Month, so it's the perfect time for San Diego Filipino Cinema to launch its first-ever San Diego Filipino Film Festival. The festival runs October 14th through 19th in a mix of virtual and in-person events. KPBS arts reporter Beth Acamando speaks with executive director Benito Bautista, who co-founded the festival with Emma Francisco.
11: Benito, tell us what the San Diego Filipino Cinema is all about.
0: San Diego Filipino
12: Cinema is a 501c3 nonprofit based in San Diego. And our mission is to discover and exhibit compelling films from the global Filipino filmmakers to the diverse community in San Diego. We also nurture uh, emerging Filipino-American filmmakers in San Diego.
11: And you've been doing this for three years?
12: This is our third year, yes. Yeah, including pandemic, (laughs) yes.
11: And you have very exciting news right now, which is you are staging your first Filipino Film Festival here in San Diego. So what is this going to entail?
12: We are excited, nervous at the same time, proud and inspired to have the first San Diego Filipino Film Festival here in San Diego, in the history of San Diego County. And so, we have about 40 films plus, you know, that we are on official selection. And there are also some 30 plus films on online on a hybrid film festival. Just to give you sort of the highlights, you know, we have amazing films coming from Canada, from the Philippines, from Colorado, New Mexico, from New York, from Wisconsin, from LA, everywhere, San Francisco, all over uh, San Diego. And we have filmmakers coming and we have actors and producers and writers. Our opening film, it's a a feature documentary that represents Asian American women, music, aging, discrimination. It's entitled The Fanny. It's a band of Filipino-American women in the 60s and 70s uh, based in Sacramento and they were rock musicians like the Rolling Stones, but they were never recognized by the American music industry uh, because of the color of their skin and also because members of the band were, uh, are LGBTQ. We also have uh, a fantastic first feature film created by Dante Basco. Dante Basco is a Filipino-American actor in Hollywood. Um, We also have a special work in progress screening of A Long March by Tammy Botkin. I'm one of the co-producers of this film. It's a feature documentary about the story of the Filipino U.S. Army veterans of World War II. That service was not recognized. In 1946, Congress passed the rescission act. The Filipino soldiers to not have been on active duty. I never thought
8: that being a veteran would be a second-rate citizen in the United
12: States.
11: And we are sitting here in the recently remodeled Mangay Museum, and this is where your opening night is going to be. So, explain what people can expect on opening night.
12: Well, the opening the opening night will be a celebration of Filipino food, <laughs> of course, right? And then also we have uh, Filipino-made whiskey (laughs) and Filipino-made soju. And of course, we have a red carpet.
11: And how do you see film as being kind of an ambassador for a culture and being able to kind of expose people to maybe things that they're not familiar with?
12: Now, to answer your question, if you are open to cinema, and you're willing to participate in it, it will be a journey into the unknown. And, and, and what's amazing about that is you will realize that you are actually traveling with cinema. You're traveling in a different culture, in a different language, in a different landscape, but it's a shared humanity. We share the same emotions. We share the same struggle and hurt, and, and pain, and love, and you know, all, all those things. So, it, it is simple, but it, it is powerful at the same time. So, if you look at a city, you know, in any city, you know, in, in the world, you will realize that the cities that are with a lot of people, with a lot of tourists coming in, they want to engage in art. They want to engage in cinema. And so the more cinema you have in a city, the more people will gather and will travel, you know, into your city, you know, because they wanted to be informed and they want to be informed in a media that is, again, simple and powerful, you know, cinema. Yeah.
11: And San Diego has a large Filipino community. And what do you think having a festival like this will mean to that community?
12: Very, very good question. Well, again, it goes back to the word nervous. <laughs> because Emma and I and the board, of course, and our volunteers, we are excited. We are inspired. But we're nervous because uh, this is a test. We wanted to see if we can engage the community in participating in, in familiar stories or stories that they've never heard, or stories moving forward that are coming from a younger generation, talking to them. It's a, it's showing them a mirror of you know, familiar stuff and unfamiliar stuff, you know? And so we don't know how they are going to engage. Will they engage running to the theater? That will be awesome. Or they will not go, you know? But what we're excited about is that we have given San Diego sort of a platform to see, to see and be curious uh, and, and find out what, what we have globally. Because there are a lot of Filipinos globally. And the experience of a Filipino in Africa or the Philippines or California may not be the same, but the but the perspective might be the same. So we don't know and we're excited about that. So yeah we're inviting the filipino american community to and the diverse uh, community of course and the asian community and the aapi community and the lgbtq community to to participate and and yeah and it's nice because you're not only watching films but you're meeting real filmmakers and actors and writers and producers and musical composers so Yeah, if I'm not I'm not a filmmaker, I am just an audience. That will be awesome for me. So yes.
11: Well, I want to thank you for talking about the first San Diego Filipino Film Festival.
12: Thank you, Beth, and thank you uh, KPBS for having me. Uh, Seriously, it's been, it's an honor. It's an honor to be here. Thank you.
0: That was Beth Acomando speaking with Benito Bautista. The inaugural San Diego Filipino Film Festival kicks off tomorrow night at the Mingay International Museum.